Welcome to episode seven of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast, talking with athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. I'm your host, Ian Sharman, head coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. This episode, we're talking to Tina Muir, who's a British international elite runner living in St. Louis, Missouri, a keynote speaker and host of the Running For Real podcast, which has over three and a half million downloads. Tina founded Running For Real in 2017 as a support network and community for runners, have a place to share struggles and empower other runners. She's an excellent and very empathetic interviewer, and I think you'll really enjoy this. This show delves into Tina's experience as a pro 236 marathoner. In particular, we discuss not having a period for nine years, which is known as amenorrhea, then realizing that she had disordered eating, the broader concept of relative energy deficiency in sport, also known as RED-S, plus the warning signs and what to do about it. This is especially relevant for female athletes, but the overtraining and undereating elements apply to absolutely everyone. We also discuss life beyond competitive road running, including trails and adventure racing, and then we delve into her business running for real and a bit more about her podcast. Enjoy. And now a word about our podcast sponsor, Inside Tracker. Today, more than ever, it's essential that we're making the right decisions to keep our bodies healthy, to help us be resilient, take control, and strengthen us from the inside out. But we're overloaded with nutritional information, leaving us with more questions than answers. Does that even work? Can I trust it? Will that work for my health and wellness goals without compromising athletic performance? How do you know what your body uniquely needs unless you ask it? So for the podium chasers, the truth seekers, and the goal getters, the answers are inside you. Inside Tracker is the ultra-personalized nutrition and wellness platform that analyzes data from your blood, DNA, and lifestyle habits to help you optimize your body, recover faster, prevent injury, and reach your performance goals. Inside Tracker's patented system will transform your body's data into knowledge, insights, and a customized action plan of science-backed recommendations. Are you ready to take control of your health and wellness journey? Change is an inside job with Inside Tracker. So visit insidetracker.com forward slash podium to download the free rest day checklist ebook and sign up to be the first to get notified about Inside Tracker's best deal of the year. Welcome and thank you for joining me, Tina. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast quite a lot recently, so it's great to have you on the show. Uh, and firstly, also congrats on becoming a uh, mum for the second time. Well, it wasn't that recent. It's still uh, within the past few months. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, yes, it's really strange uh, as we're recording this five months. It's just about five months and it feels with my first daughter, I swear everything I was, I was so aware of everything. And it was almost felt like it was like four weeks, uh, uh, four months and one day and, and really counting. Whereas this time it just feels like she just kind of slotted in. And, and I think that is the whole thing as anyone with siblings know that anyone beyond the first is just kind of has to slot in with the rest of life, uh, and how the family gets on. And so, yeah, it's been very interesting that this time around, I feel like I've just my second daughter Chloe has just had to kind of get on with life. <laughs> and how did that differ though this time that it's in during COVID and hospitals were a bit different and lockdowns and similar things? Do you know as much as it was scary in I'm not gonna lie in February March it was pretty scary not knowing what was going on. I mean the early research was finding from women in China that, that it wasn't a higher risk. Um, it was still pretty scary knowing that you didn't know what the future was going to look like you know, I didn't know what that was going to involve, how it was going to affect, you know, this potential unborn child in me that who knew what the effects were going to be. Um, so it was scary. And it, so that did add on extra stress. But I have to say that I feel really, really lucky that actually it's been pretty 
I don't want to say good because obviously none of us would wish this but I've been very fortunate in that it's meant my husband has been home a lot more in fact the first few months he was home all the time so I wasn't home on my own with two girls Um, it's meant that we I could be at home and not feeling stressed about not going to races and things like that because everyone has been home so in many ways the COVID situation has actually been I hate to say it, a decent time to have a baby because of the natural kind of slowdown that life requires. This has kind of forced that upon everyone, but I would have been doing it anyway. And there's a silver lining there. I think it's one of the key things that I try to talk about a lot on this podcast, which is just that there's good things that come with uh, opportunities, basically. So when something mm-hmm. negative happens, there's usually some positives in there. And if you can search for those and being able to have um, two parents at home has certainly been a big one for other family members that I know. I don't have kids myself, but I know that that's been a, a real help for a lot of them. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And um, I actually heard uh, um, Matthew McConaughey has been doing his rounds on <laughs> on everything lately, but I heard him talking about the fact that uh, about his father passing and how, um, you know, anyone would see that as how could that possibly be anything good? Uh, but the lessons that he has learned, the things that he's undertaken because of his father passing, he feels he wouldn't have learned otherwise. So I think you're right that there in every bad thing, there are things you can find to come out of it. And I think many people have come out of this situation, having slowed slowed down, having thought about what matters the most, having spent time with a family. I think especially people with teenage children have had this time with their kids that they never would have got because the kids would have been out exploring with their friends. So yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot of silver linings. Um, and even within our running, it's forced people to find their why, which is pretty long overdue for a lot of people but it's it's really been a positive definitely I mean, any change is just a chance to to think about what you're doing because i think a lot of us are on autopilot i heard you yeah. in one of your most recent podcasts talking about how um, obviously a lot of people have jobs where they've been doing it for years and it's just what they do they don't actually enjoy it necessarily mm-hmm. and it's difficult to find your passion um, yes. and it's difficult to work towards that but this is a year where it's not like things are easy obviously people losing jobs uh, and people dying as well is an incredibly difficult thing to deal with but it it has led to some opportunities there so Mm -hmm. it's being able to take advantage of those and you get opportunities during the bad times opportunities during the good times whether it's related to your running your family life your work uh, and it's about being able to to grasp those and and see where they are and and reassess things but Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's a, a little bit uh, of a side from, from what I was initially going to start talking about. But I think it's really important stuff because yeah. it's uh, it's something that everyone is going through. And it's it's how you either cope with something well and come out the other side stronger or you deal with it in a worse way and everything becomes more negative and it's harder to just get through the days. But mm-hmm. overall, how have you been coping, would you say, through the COVID period, given that you do at least have your, your work that you do from home? Have you, has it been a, a particularly difficult period purely from not just family, but from work? Or has it been uh, actually in some ways easier because, for example, you've had extra childcare? Um, I'd say a bit of both. I'd say overall, I have handled this well. But again, I'm very fortunate that this was going to be a slowdown period in my life anyway. So I had mentally prepared myself for that. So I think 
it, this has just kind of made it easier for me of not experiencing the you know missing out sensation however that being said the uh you know the fact that I I mean are you too I'm assuming uh haven't seen my family in uh I haven't been home in a year uh I don't know when I'm gonna get to go home my sister had a baby in uh six weeks ago and I haven't met him I have no idea when I'll meet him or my mum and dad meeting my uh, second daughter Chloe so there's things that those weigh on me a lot um, and uh, I also within the work yes my husband has been home more which has been amazing uh, but we also it's made it difficult with finding someone else because not having family to come that often uh, my husband's parents can come from time to time but other than that it's just pretty much been the two of us which has been quite a weight on us as well uh, not being able to say my parents are coming for two weeks and they can go off and take uh, my older daughter away uh, for the day or um, being able to you know we might have a babysitter or someone to watch the girls but then if that if that sitter feels at all unwell, then we have to say, no, you know, it's not worth the risk. So um, I think there's been good and bad in there. Uh, but for the most part, I feel quite proud of how I've handled it. Uh, not going to lie that I've had some days where I've just had total meltdowns and crying, probably partially for the hormones. But I think mostly just the fact of, I think we all have our days where we've just had enough and this feels exhausting and um, we crave that sense of normalcy, which I personally think has gone forever. But um, yes, yeah, it's it's, I've, it's definitely had some ups and downs. But uh, overall, I feel like I've done okay. <laughs> no, well, I'm glad glad to hear that. I, I certainly can empathise with a lot of that. I had my mm. wife's sister had a baby. Um, was it three days ago? So we don't know when we'll get to see the baby. But mm -hmm. uh, at least you now you have Zoom and Skype and yes. FaceTime and all these other things that uh, make things a little bit easier there. But uh, it actually, it, what we were talking about at first is related to something that I want to talk to you about, which is we both are Brits who now live in America. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's already that upheaval that you get from moving from one country to another that is not dissimilar to the upheaval of a, a weird year like this. Mm -hmm. So... Um, when did you actually move to the US and was that to get married? Was that for running? What, what What's the, the history there? <laughs> well, what's funny is when I first came to the US, I said I will never, ever just marry to stay here. Um, and then and then now here I am, I'm married. Uh, I was always like, I want to be the one, I want to be the one who comes here. And America says, please, please, Tina, stay. We need you. Like, um, you know, thinking I was obviously worth <laughs> more than I was but um no I came here for college uh I actually came here a year before uh my university after I finished school in England at age 18 uh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to commit to a full doing my degree over here so I went to California um and I spent a year or I spent eight months there met some amazing people um but then my visa got denied to the uh, to come back to do my um degree here because um they funnily enough thought that um I had a boyfriend which I did not um so the joke's on them because then I ended up going to a different university in Michigan I applied again pretty much beg beg to the woman at the uh, immig uh not immigration yeah is it immigration what is the uh, the customs I can't even remember yeah, the Oscars thing yeah the uh, yeah. U.S. customs and immigration yeah service. I yeah. pretty much beg them to give me I'm sure we both know a lot about them yes <laughs> and I spent many hours in that 
horrible building in England. <laughs> um, but uh, pretty much begged them to let me have a visa. They let me. Um, and then, yeah, that is where I ended up meeting my now husband. So had they left me in California, who knows what would have happened. But uh, so then, yeah, I went to university here. I uh, went to Michigan, a school in Michigan called Ferris State, which is a division two. Um, and I, when I went there, I wasn't doing particularly well. I was pretty out of shape. I was um, kind of uh, coasting. I was not really doing much and uh, got arrived here. And I was really shocked by how intense and serious the collegiate system is here in the US. And so I um, kind of decided straight away that I wanted to get back into shape and really get going. And it took me a good year before my body and mind was ready to actually start improving. But then once I did, I really started to take off and improve very drastically. And were you over here on a scholarship or did you get into running more once you're already at university in the US? I did come here on a scholarship. I mean, I had the times for my final year in university, uh, in school in England, where I'd run really well. I'd finished um, 16th at nationals, which was, um, you know, well enough to get offers. Um, and I definitely wasn't, <laughs> wasn't in the same kind of uh, fitness level that I was when that had happened. But I had the times and so they were able to go by those and um, and bring me over for, yeah, I was on a full ride. And I know that marathoning became your main thing. Was What was the, what were the distances you did back then? Um, I, I mean, I did cross country. I always loved cross country um, in, in England. Uh, didn't really enjoy it as much in the US because it's, it was quite manicured, a lot of the courses. Uh, but I still enjoyed kind of, cross country for what it was over here uh but and then I did 5k and 10k on the track so it was the longest you could do in college but um still I had a feeling I mean in my final year at university I was running uh, I think 16 to 18 mile long runs so I could already already tell that the longer stuff was going to be where I was going to end up and then after university did you go straight into contracts with shoe companies uh, and treating running as your main thing or, or what was your uh, career path at that point? No, I actually went on to do my master's. Uh, I got an MBA uh, from LaSalle University, which is in Philadelphia. Uh, and I was an assistant coach at LaSalle. So I was doing coaching, I was doing my degree, and then I was doing uh, the running as well, trying to juggle all three of those. I wasn't doing a great job of, of managing all three of those. It was a bit too much but on my body, but I did a pre I did well, and um, I did not have a shoe contract out the door. Uh, LaSalle at the time was partnered with Saucony, and so I managed to get um, it put on what was their Saucony Hurricanes team. Uh, although I was never paid on that, it was always just clothes and shoes and a tiny amount for travel uh, for races I think and so uh, I considered myself a professional athlete but primarily because people were asking me if I was professional all the time whereas I mean I'd love to hear your take on this but in England uh, I don't feel like people finish university and then say okay I'm going to go pro it's just kind of if you make it through your university still doing the sport you just keep going and it's not so much a decision to go pro or not and that was my experience anyway everyone kind of does it anyway and it's just a bonus if you get any money that's at least how I saw it being English I, I, I kind of agree with that I, I, I never would have thought that unless you're an Olympian uh, and by that I mean like a medalist in the Olympics it didn't really seem like 
uh, to be honest, most Olympic sports were even viable careers. They were more mm-hmm. something you had to do in your spare time. I, I worked at a company called Deloitte, uh, an accounting yeah. firm, when I was out of university. And playing on their field hockey team there, there's one guy who played for England. And I'm thinking, how come you're doing the same job as me? And you're like one of the best people in the world at this sport. Mm-hmm. But it's a sport that doesn't have much money. And to be honest, running is in many ways similar to that as well. Yeah. So unless you can be uh, the top, top level, the Usain Bolt, the Mo Farah, the guys that can get the million, million dollar contracts, there's not huge amounts of money. And I think this is probably something people don't realize that mm-hmm. the vast majority of so-called pro runners are also working in the local Starbucks and uh, that kind of thing to, to be able to actually make a living or living in a van. And particularly with ultra running, the van life and the uh, uh, and getting by on less is, is a big part of it for many people. But uh, yeah. I have to admit, given I did nine years of corporate job in the US and the UK, I, I couldn't quite uh, switch to being a full-time runner where that uh, didn't involve still making a, a living Living that was a long-term thing but uh, yeah. certainly your experience there is kind of what I'd expect uh, and I'm sure it's the case for a lot of people that if you can mm-hmm. get that breakthrough thing if you can win the Chicago Marathon versus be being the top American at the Chicago Marathon then you've got so much more uh, of a, a career path out of that. Yeah I mean I've actually spoken a lot about the difference but I get asked a lot and I'm sure you do too about qualifying for teams in England uh, in Great Britain versus uh, here in the US and in in Great Britain and Northern Ireland, it's a lot more like a political system of who, uh, of like, there is a trial, but it's kind of more picking and choosing, well, we'll let this person go. This person didn't run the trial, but we'll let them in anyway. Whereas America, it's very like, who crosses the line first? One, two, three. And, um, and so I've, I, I've gone back and forth on which system I feel is fairest, um, but, or, or the best, but yeah, I think, a lot of people don't realize that the way things are here in the US in the running world at the elite level is definitely not um, the same. It's not the same worldwide. Uh, America is definitely a, a very unique system in a good way um, in that, that that running and, and other sports are given more opportunities. It's that cheesy thing, but it's true. I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think I, I bias slightly towards what a lot of other countries do, where they say you have three Olympians they can pick for the marathon and they try and factor in more than just how they did on one day. So it could be, you know, Paula Radcliffe would get in the team even if she was injured mm-hmm. because she's the world record holder. So she has mm-hmm. the potential to medal while allowing someone who maybe is fit at the moment and has the fastest time of the year, but it's 10 minutes slower than her. It kind of makes sense that you don't just um, say, here's one day and you've got to be super fit for this. And we don't care if you are the best person, but you're ill or injured. You, you kind of lose out in that case. Mm-hmm. But I can also see that it's very fair to have one race and say everyone's equal on that day and, and see who gets in. Although it's probably more fair for shorter distances than a marathon yeah. because the marathon, you do a couple of those in the year. While if you do the 5,000 or the 10,000 or the sprints, then you can be doing that every weekend. And so it doesn't really impact your calendar as much to have to peak at a separate time. Plus mm-hmm. they tend to peak in June for the Olympics rather than the marathon where they have to peak in say February. And then again for the Olympics in August. Yeah. It's interesting. So what do you miss the most about living in the UK, given I'm guessing you haven't really lived there since you went to university? Yeah, no, I haven't. I did spend uh, five weeks there, which felt like a long time, in 2016. Yeah, uh, between uh, running in the World 
half marathon championships in which was in Cardiff in Wales and uh the London Marathon so I had a five-year stretch and a five-week stretch and that felt like uh, a really long time but yeah for the most part I have been here otherwise um what do I miss the most I mean obviously other than the obvious of friends and family I I don't know there's lots of little things there's lots of little foods I miss which usually when I come home I my suitcases I'm not joking 50 percent food that I'm bringing back please don't tell customs on me yeah I was gonna um, say they don't like that generally <laughs> no. and then um the other half uh, and then I do miss kind of a lot of the culture things um I I, I miss the humor uh and I I don't know I, I do like the attitude of British people that tend to be very um hard to crack through when you first meet people uh, Americans are usually pretty uh, enthusiastic and happy when you meet them but I feel like British people give off a like you need to earn my trust vibe uh but I a actually bit more standoffish I agree yes, yeah exactly but I I I once you crack through I uh, really have a very deep relationship with a lot of people there and um I I think I miss that and just the the British way of things so there's not one thing in particular if I was to say anything it would probably be some kind of food <laughs> what about from a running perspective are there things that you miss but you said you like the cross-country uh, mm-hmm. style of the courses there versus the US one for example are there other things to do with maybe what it's like in the London marathon versus what it's like in a major marathon in the US for example yeah I I feel like I can't tell if it is because I'm British because London is 20 miles from where my parents live where I was from or if I'm just telling the truth that I genuinely believe London is the best marathon like hands down um and I have done the big ones over here or at least I've done New York but I've experienced it and I still think London is the best um so that I I love and I would encourage anyone listening if you haven't done London and I know it's really hard to get in but if you can sign up why not? Uh, if you can sign up for the lottery, why not? You may not get in, but if you do, it's just an incredible race. And I I miss the countryside in England. The A lot of the places to run are beautiful. I love the fact that you can pretty much go anywhere without, without worrying about it. That's something that makes me nervous in the US, that things are people's property and you could, in theory, get shot <laughs> if you were on someone's property. Um, if they were out hunting and you didn't know or something whereas I feel in England for the most part it's pretty much wherever you want to go and I love the fact that I could be running in in the countryside in England and come across sheep and cows and horses and just be running past them and they just watch you go past or sheep might run away but um I love the fact that I could go anywhere and and just um it just seemed felt a lot more accessible in many ways um, so that's do, something. Do you feel like sometimes, as a as a woman running on your own, that uh, it was a bit safer in the UK as well? It went, even just running around mm. a city versus the US, or, or not really? I've never thought about that, but I I think that depend would depend where you obviously where you were in both countries. But Definitely. if I think about, I probably would feel safer, yeah, in in England. But partly is that that is because of what I just said that over here I do worry about getting ending up on someone's property. Uh, whereas over there, I don't think most people would care. Um, and then I do miss the fact that it's very like gritty, the running there. I think there's a lot more. I just, I'm sure you have warm memories of this too, of, uh, 
cross country races on a weekend where you might have people who are 12 and people who are 88 in the same race. You're all just running in the mud. The mud is splatting in your face and it's just a bit more like gritty. And, um, I, I mean, obviously I am comparing my kind of elite and college experience where things, so I haven't a lot, had a lot of experience in cross country over here, but, um, everything just felt there a bit more like uh, simple and, uh, I don't know, just like uh, traditional, maybe lower key a little bit. Yeah, I would yeah, think. yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Whereas here, it's it's if, if someone's going to do a cross country race over here, it feels very planned. People will be very organized, and maybe things have changed. But uh, I just loved the kind of yeah simple nature of 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 running over there. I, I can definitely see that. I mean, it definitely felt like coming over to the US that the you know everything is is bigger. Obviously, there's more money involved in everything. If you're going to be a professional runner, whether it's an ultra runner, a track runner, a marathon runner, all of those is a lot more options realistically in the US, especially with the collegiate system and beyond. I didn't have anything to do with that. I, I didn't really start running till I was 24, 25 uh, and didn't start professionally, I suppose you could call it, and getting sponsored until I was 29. So mm -hmm. I, I didn't have any of that experience at all. But I did get the the small races in the U UK. And the kind of image I have of a typical UK race is February and it's freezing cold, below freezing, and there's some frost on the ground. And there's a load of old men in singlets and shorts pretending like it's not cold and then they run really hard. That's the kind of, it, you know, it's just that the old school version to it. Well, I think it's yeah. become certainly more corporatized in, in the US, but then you look at something like London and that's obviously a you know massive uh -huh. uh, TV event and a global event with the biggest prizes and everything like that. But uh, I would say in terms of having done a lot of the major marathons in the world, I haven't done Chicago admittedly, but uh, of the major US ones, I think Boston is probably the best road marathon in the world. Um, there's something special about that, um, but I do love London. I've done, done London <laughs> three times and uh, I, I live just off the course and my standard runs during the week were large parts of the finish area of, okay. uh, of, of the London Marathon, mm. which did take away from it a bit because it is like, mm. why am I paying to do something I do every day <laughs> anyway? <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I have to give a shout out to Boston there for being something special, especially because everyone's worked so hard to get there oh, that yeah. you've got to earn your place. I think that that adds a lot of value to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, you want to be careful here because if you, I, I've I've had to watch my mouth sometimes with with saying about London being better than Boston because <laughs> I feel like I'm like insulting insulting people's like most cherished memory by saying that I love London. So I still well, love also Boston look at it this way: no matter where you live, that you kind of think of the main one as being what you have locally. So yeah. in the UK, if you say the marathon, it means London, and to normal non-runners. There aren't other ones. They, they have no idea about the other ones anyway. <laughs> While if you say the marathon in Boston, it's going to mean the Boston Marathon. Yeah. If you said the marathon in New York, I think like most people say, what, we have, a, we have a marathon here? I had no idea. Oh, that's the day they close the roads a bit. Okay. You know, it's not as big <laughs> a deal, good. I think, because it's such yeah. a major city with so much else going on as well. Not yeah. that those other cities aren't, but I think that they're a little bit more focused on their, their marathons. Mm -hmm. But yeah. anyway, I, I know that, you know, marathon obviously became uh, the main thing for you and you set your PR in 2017, I believe, of, of 236. Uh, 2016, right 2016. at the end. Yeah. Uh, and which race was that at? Uh, California International Marathon. Have you done that one? Oh, okay. I have done that one once. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's a nice one. It's, it's the one that's traditionally known as being super fast, but it's got nasty hills in it. I think I this know, is people, I people know. don't realize it. The first half yeah. has some nasty little rollers in there yeah, that make it a little true. bit tougher than you expect. Yeah. That's why my PR was what it was. I mean, I was definitely ready for faster, but we, 
we got tripped up by the downhill, the the lure of the downhill when uh, thinking naively that it was going to be just a nice, gentle, gradual downhill all the way, um, which it definitely is not. So, so yes, anyone who's thinking about CIM, make sure you practice uphill and downhill because um, it is it is rolling for sure. And I would argue that the reason it's considered so fast is because it attracts a really good American field mm-hmm. because there's lots of prize money. Mm-hmm. So you get fast people there that give fast times as opposed to the course is necessarily super quick. But also, I'm sure you can appreciate this from seeing other races in California. Most of the other ones are really hilly. LA Marathon, San Francisco Marathon, um, uh, just any of the smaller city ones, Oakland as well. These are hilly races. Mm-hmm. So CIM to a Californian is really, really flat. Yeah. So it, it also appeals from that perspective. Yeah. So, so you, you ran really well there. And then one of the main areas I wanted to talk about today is what happened after that uh, and in the months uh, and the year after that, where 2017 was um, a kind of eye-opening year for you. And uh, uh, here's a, a phrase, uh, an illness that a lot of people won't probably even heard about, especially men, uh, amenorrhea. So mm-hmm. do you want to talk a little bit about that and explain what happened and what you realized and then what that led to for you? Yeah, sure. Um, there are two parts to this. Uh, the first is that, yeah, I uh, amenorrhea, uh, which mean uh, I had amenorrhea, which means I had not had or did not have a period, um, did not have a menstrual cycle. And I hadn't had that in nine years, uh, which was not, it doesn't have any long-term effects uh, immediately uh, that you would know of. Uh, There's some studies that are being done on bone health, but for the most part, I was able to get away with it. I didn't have many injuries, so that made it easy to mask it and just kind of get on with things. Um, uh, Although I do want to mention that amenorrhea is actually kind of since then has become kind of a dated term and now the term is red s uh, relative energy deficiency syndrome some yeah i think, I think, it's yeah, I think it is yeah um, I, w- and, I was going to ask you what the difference yeah. between those two things was so is it just really just a new terminology um well it's more that red s is explaining kind of what is going on amenorrhea just means a loss of a period whereas uh red s explains that the reason you don't have a period is because of uh, not getting enough calories for the amount of exercise you are doing or the the life you are living. And that said, that applies to men too. Like yeah, traditionally, this was only looked at in women, but there are a lot of men out there who do um, under eat for what they're doing and will experience cyst- um, things such as uh, low testosterone, um, inability to stay warm, um, stomach upsets is another um sign and obviously these apply to women too but there's more signs than just the loss of a period the loss of a period is kind of like the most obvious blaring red flag the other things people can quite easily ignore um but yeah if someone has noticed the the things i've mentioned um and also i had really bad insomnia that's another another sign of it like an inability to rest feeling kind of wired yet really tired all the time um so there are there are lots more symptoms and I would encourage someone to to look it up if you think there's any chance that something doesn't feel right in your body and you've been training extra hard and and maybe you can be honest with yourself and say you haven't maybe been getting enough calories or you have been restricting your calories um for me that was the biggest difference actually was it wasn't even so much about eating more it was about accepting that I wasn't eating enough I knew it deep down all along but I kind of fought it and said 
no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. But I knew deep down I wasn't eating enough. And if you know that deep down, someone listening, go look up Red S because um, there could be long-term effects for you. And it just will make your life so much better. Like I can't describe how many things have improved that I struggled with for so many years thinking that's just the way they were. For example, in the winter, I thought I had Raynaud's, uh, which is kind of a, um, I, I don't know what you would class it as, but it was a medical condition where your fingers and toes go white and you really struggle with the cold in your extremities. And I, every winter, hated the cold because of my what I thought was rainouts, but now I know that was just a lack of calories that my body. Did, did you ex- tend to explain things away and say, like, yes. "Oh, that's a that's a thing"? Is because I'm I'm thin, so of course I you know my fingers don't have as much fat on them, or you know, did you start rationalizing exactly. things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were so many things like the insomnia. I would just say, "Well, I'm just like a, I just have a lot going on. I just can't switch off." When really it was my body was you know unable to to properly rest or. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples of things. Uh, yeah, the stomach upsets a lot of the time. Um, I would say, well, I just, that must've been cause I had beans last night for dinner or whatever it would be like, yeah, you do start explaining things away. Um, but I knew, and I think everyone knows deep down whether they're restricting, if you're going out to eat and, uh, in the evening and you're the next day saying, okay, well, I ate too much last night. I need to eat a salad. Or um, if you're saying, well, I'm eating my dinner in three hours, but I'm hungry. Well, you can just have some carrots and, and then and then you can eat your dinner or something. If you're restricting in any way, that's, that's a giant red flag that your body is saying, please, please help me. So just to encourage how you. Do you to- how do you think that differs between someone who's just trying to be healthy as well? Because, it, again, it seems like a very fine line there. Uh-huh. And I think it is. I think there is, especially with us all being at home, there's a fine line between boredom and because when we, when we are bored, um, we do sometimes reach for food. However, um, you know, if you have some water, if you had – I wouldn't say drink a whole glass of water because if you do that, you are going to feel full um, just from the sheer volume. But you could drink a little bit of water and see if you're just thirsty or you could um, just, I mean, I've actually found meditation is really good in general with uh, working through physical physical sensations in my body to say, okay, like in this, it would be, am I actually hungry or am I just feeling a sensation of discomfort for something I'm thinking about and it's causing me to want to go get some comfort from food or um you could you know go for a a five ten minute walk outside if and say okay if I come back and I'm still hungry then I'm gonna eat that must be hunger so I think there's little ways of checking um but yes I do understand but I generally, uh, I do have a podcast episode I would love if you could share with people uh, with Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani. Definitely. And she explains a lot more of this than I do. Um, I can, yeah, send that along to you to put with this episode. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes, yeah. Yeah, because she explained it so well with the difference between people um, restricting and just kind of, yeah, trying to be healthy. But if you are thinking about food all the time, uh, kind of uh, like I would be finishing one meal and be like, oh, I can't wait for dinner or I can't wait for my snack. Um, that's probably a, a big flag that you're not eating enough. And I think a lot of people feel like they're eating too much because they're gaining weight. But sometimes it's actually the other way that you're not eating enough. So your body is just storing everything. 
Um, whereas if you ate, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but if you ate just a little bit more, your body would feel relaxed enough to actually do what it's supposed to be doing. So um, that was what was going on with me for a long time. I knew I was restricting, but I, uh, as many people do, looked down at my body and thought I looked big compared to the other runners I was racing against. Uh, now I look at photos of me and I just can't believe I thought that way uh, because I was just the same as everyone else. Um, but yeah, so that was going on and underneath I knew that wasn't healthy. I knew that I wasn't far away from wanting to start a family and I knew that I couldn't have a family if I, or I couldn't start trying for a family if I didn't have a cycle to to be able to do it. So that was weighing on my mind. And then at the same time, after I achieved um, my number one running goal, which I set myself when I was 14, of running for Great Britain in the world championship in a world championships, which actually Ian, I put down, I found recently, I actually wrote cross country in a cross country world championships. So I still have to go back and do that apparently because I never oh, completed well, why it. Why not? That there's still time, and, and that's <laughs> yeah. something. I, I, you know, at the end of this, I want to talk about where where we're going next with your running because this has obviously been a bit of a break for you, yeah. uh, and you've had two kids now uh, within that time. So, but firstly, what, what was the kind of aha moment where you realized that what you're doing was either not fun, not sustainable, and, and that you realized you had to change it? Yeah. So I, I'd, I'd accomplished this big goal. And then, and then I also ran a, a, P, a PR in London a few weeks later. And then I ran that personal best at California International. And then I noticed uh, that. After that race in CIM, I was really having a hard time recovering. Uh, physically, the hills just beat me up. All the other courses I had done, I'd done London, I'd done Chicago, I'd done Philadelphia. Um, I think that was it. And so those were all flat. And so the hills really beat me up. So for a few weeks, we explained it away. But then I noticed that mentally, I just wasn't enjoying it, wasn't looking forward to it. And I, over the coming weeks and months, just found I was just getting to the point where I have to run. I'd be in one run, dreading the next run. Uh, I'd be just kind of plodding along, just hating it. I was at home during this time. Uh, and I just found myself, usually when I go home, I love running through the, the places near my house and just, it just, I find I'm smiling. Whereas I found myself thinking like, Oh, I can't wait for this to be done. Um, and then I actually did reach a breaking point where my sister had had her first child and, um, she, I was staying with her and looking after her and this newborn who was crying a lot. And uh, I was still trying to run 90 miles a week. I was tired from staying up all night with my sister because her husband is a pediatric nurse. So he was working and I went to use my local track and um, do, do a, a speed session the day I was flying back to the US. And then I got told to get off the track, <laughs> which um, was just ironic being the track that my running career had begun. Uh, like 15 years before that and um and then something inside of me snapped I just said I'm done and I from that day I didn't run a step for for three months so that was um just yeah a moment when everything kind of came together and made me realize I had to make a change and had you been enjoying running, would you say, in the year or two before that? Or did you feel like it was maybe more about pressure and results than this thing that you had always wanted to do as a, a for a living? 
I think it was the old thing that we hear a lot of. You have this goal in mind. I had this carrot dangling for 15 or 14 years of my life and then achieving it and then kind of being like, oh, well, I've done it now. So now, now what? <laughs> and like this, you know, you hear that all the time. Like I've heard Jared Ward um, talk about it before about being an Olympian and then coming home and then four weeks later being like, oh, my life's still the same as it was before. Uh, so I think it was kind of that thing that realizing uh, it didn't make me suddenly eternally happy. It didn't make me feel like I still had those doubts of not feeling good enough. I, and um, so I think a lot of it was realizing that I was still the same person. They still had some things I wasn't dealing with. And yeah, just a lack of, I'd always been a very driven goal-based person. And since that moment, I still don't really want goals. Um, because I just feel I'd been, yeah, wait, I'd been so dependent on them for so many years to keep me motivated. Um, and it just, it wasn't working anymore. I think a lot of people can relate to that, which is that we aim towards something, whether it is a PR, whether it's getting a sub three marathon, a sub four marathon, whatever that thing is, that is your big goal and is a massive achievement. And then they realize that they're just the same after achieving it. And I think, I I think it was an Olympic coach who was uh, telling his athletes, if you get that gold medal and you think that's going to fix your life and that all you have to do is just get there and then everything is sweetness and light. If it's not already good before that, it's not like it's going to change overnight. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a a key message to get across to everyone at any level of the sport of any sport, to be honest, that just achieving an outcome is not going to give you some kind of light switch of of changing between bad and good. If you're not enjoying the Mm -hmm. sport, if you're not enjoying your life, that doesn't get fixed by suddenly achieving this major thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's a really key lesson in life that you've got to enjoy the journey. I mean, it's, yeah. it's such a cliche, but it's still very true that you've got to enjoy training in running. You've got to enjoy getting outside and doing the, the process of daily fitting in the runs and getting some fun out of workouts and the social elements rather than it just all being about the outcome. Uh-huh. And also the thing that I think people don't uh, appreciate in that, even if they are super type A and they're, they all they do care about is the outcome and they're not willing to buy into that, is you're more likely to get that outcome if you yeah. can get the other stuff right. If you can get the right process, you're much more likely to have that great race day. And this is even more so, I think, for the endurance events where the marathon and beyond – you have so many things you've got to manage that if you don't get on top of those and have the right training process, like being aware that you're not eating enough, or if you're overtraining, rather than just being so focused on thinking, I've got to hit 90 miles a week, no matter what, I can't get above this weight, no matter what. And then you, you're just thinking about that outcome. And you're not actually thinking about how you feel along the way and what you need to adjust. So th- did you ever, um, I mean, how did you approach your training when you're at that elite level? Did you ever think like that or were you very rigid in some ways with your, uh, with your training and your lifestyle? Um, I was very rigid, uh, overall. Uh, he did have some ability to let things go. Uh, I always tell the story of the fact my highest mileage ever was 99.7 miles. Um, <laughs> because I, that's what it happened to land. And I said to my husband, can I, can I go out and just do half a mile to get over? And he was like, no, w- what is the point? Why would you do that? And I said, you know, cause I, I want to get to a hundred. And, uh, he's, he said, no, I, I don't think you should do that. And obviously part of me was tempted to go out and do it. But then I thought, you know what, if I do that, I'm going to roll my, I'm going to fall off the side of a curb and roll my ankle or something. So I 
was able to stop and pull back. So I was able to do that. But said I was still that person that ran to zero zero on a run. I was very um yeah, rigid with numbers, uh, as you said, with weight, with goals, with paces. Um, I didn't, I was always very good at not looking at my pace during workouts. So I did have that at least going for me that I thankfully could just run and not pay attention to paces when I was doing my hard stuff. Uh, but I definitely was ruled by numbers. And that is what I tell people overwhelmingly as a piece of advice just for life and every aspect of running is let go of the numbers. Other women who reach out to me about getting their period back and say, I've got to this weight, I've, you know, I've calculated it at this and I've eaten this many calories and 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 there's so many things with life, same as what you said with goals. If you really want to get something, I tell people, stop looking at the numbers because that is holding you back. And I think there's so many things within the running world that we're obsessed with numbers. Whereas as you've said, and you understand this being from the ultra world, numbers don't mean as much. Um, and I'm loving that aspect of being um, able to experience life now without the numbers. I mean, I have no clue what my mileage is right now. This week, I'm going to run three days because um, I've been sick and I've taken two extra days off. I've run three days and I just don't care. That's fine. Um, or I may run three days. I've run one day this week, <laughs> hopefully two more times. But um, I just feel like um, runners get so tangled up in the numbers and um and I did too. I totally get it. I was there as well. But I'm telling you, life on the other side is so much better. And now a word about our podcast sponsor, Inside Tracker. Today, more than ever, it's essential that we do the right things to keep our bodies healthy. Inside Tracker is the ultra personalized nutrition and wellness platform that analyzes your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to help you optimize your body, hit your PR goals, and recover faster from the inside out. Transform your body's data into meaningful insights and a customized action plan of the science-backed recommendations you need to reach your goals. Are you ready to take control of your health and wellness journey? Unlock the power of your potential with Inside Tracker. Visit insidetracker.com forward slash podium, download the free rest day checklist ebook, and sign up to be the first to get notified about Inside Tracker's best deal of the year. I completely agree. I spend a lot of my time coaching people, trying to get them to not focus as much on numbers. And one of the great things, like you mentioned about trails, is because your paces are changing a lot more. And particularly if it's an ultra, uh, there's a massive difference if it's a 100-degree day versus a, a 70-degree day. So all of these things change the finish time. So it doesn't make as much sense to just be 100% focused on the outcome time. You can mm -hmm. still be focused on the outcome position in the race. That makes sense to, some, to much more of a degree. But I think it's just something that people often struggle with. So sometimes just being on the trails can help take away from that because then you can say, okay, well, you're going to be slower and you're going to go slower uphill versus downhill. So you don't need to be worrying about this mile being exactly this pace uh, while in the marathon. Um, you can measure those things so accurately and you compare one course to another and they're all typically fairly similar while on the trail world, you've got a mountain race versus a, a track race. You know, they're, they're like night and day, even if they're the same distance. Yeah. So uh, have you found that you're doing a little bit more on that side of things now? You, you're starting to be on the trails a little bit more. And do you have any desire to actually race uh, things, uh, whether it's short or long, uh, on the trails? Um, yes, I'm definitely enjoying life without numbers in, in every sense of the word. I mean, I finish my runs at like 5.67 miles and that, that doesn't bother me anymore. Or I might... Um, 
yeah, I said, I have no idea what my mileage is. I have no idea what I weigh. I have no idea like anything really with numbers. And I'm quite happy with that. I even mentioned at the beginning about my daughter not really paying attention. I know what um, number of the month she was born. And that's (laughs) the only really (laughs) thing I can pay attention to. Um, And that's purely just to get a picture of her each month on that day so that she doesn't feel like I completely forgot about her. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I am going into the trails and I am enjoying it. I've been kind of surprised with how well my body has handled longer runs. I mean, I've heard people saying it all along about if you're running slower and you're not pounding the the ground, you can actually do longer runs on time on your feet and it not affect you and not um, put you at risk of injury, uh, because you're not just running hard all the time. I mean, I loved doing my long runs where I would just finish them at like tempo pace, um, because I just wanted to, I love that feeling of being fast, but, uh, I also am really enjoying the trail aspect of being able to just look, I mean, I'm not looking up too much because my eyes are mostly pinned to the floor trying not to fall over, but I'm hoping you can tell me once I get better at it, hopefully I can lift my eyes off the ground a little bit more, but, um, (laughs) a little bit more, you still got to be careful of downhill. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, but I'm enjoying just being able to just get out there and, and see what I can do. And that said, I said to my husband a few weeks ago that I got home from a run and I said, I feel like something has awoken in me that the gritty little girl that was 14 years old who started cross country running. I feel like that in me is, is, is coming out again. Like I was always good at coming from the back and, and finishing fast. I was always good at speeding up and slowing down based on the terrain. I was always good in the, the tougher the race, the, the worse the conditions. I don't know if you ever did parliament Hill. Did you ever do that? Uh, Yeah, I've I've done all over London. Yeah. Yeah. So parliament Hill for, for listeners is this like, nasty cross-country course where you start up this ginormous hill or at least I remember it as ginormous and then you're just going up and down and the mud is just crazy you are slipping around all over the place even though you've got really big spikes or like little grippy things in your shoes um but I loved it and so I really I am excited about giving it a try actually I'm doing a trail half in November middle of November and um I I next year I was asked recently what a goal is for 2021 and I don't have any goals other than I would like to do a trail marathon so yeah I would like to see kind of where that goes and uh, have no pressure I know that there's a lot of very experienced trail runners out there and um, Dean Karnas has teased me last summer when I was running with him about how terrible I was at downhills so <laughs> I know a lot of road runners are. I, I've, I've run yeah. with several Olympic level road runners and when you're there on the trails I'm just thinking how are you this bad at running when you're this good at running it makes no sense yeah, <laughs> yeah and I had he made that exact comment he was like you crushed me on the uphills but on the downhills he was like this is really bad and I thought well okay so I know I've got a long way to go there but I yeah I'm excited to give it a try and and I am going into it with a sense of respect, having done interviews and learned from people over the years of just how tough it is. So um, I don't intend on just running a, trying to run a seven minute mile for my first mile of the marathon getting carried away. I trust myself to be smart with it, but yeah, I'm excited to to see what the future does look like. The idea of going further than 50 miles still kind of blows my mind. Um, but I would say 50 miles is definitely somewhere on there 
somewhere on the horizon within the next 10 years, I'd say. <laughs> well, the fact that you said you liked the cross-country courses that were tougher, and if it was bad weather and there were more challenges in it, that helps a lot with trail running because mm. you, you don't just get worried about, oh, it has to be perfect. Everything has to be nailed down on race day and anything other than that will be horrible for me. Instead, you embrace those extra challenges. And I find that a lot of the, the best and most rugged trail runners tend to be the people who, when they find out it's going to be a record hot day or something like that, they say, excellent, I'm ready <laughs> to take on the, the difficulty. So mm -hmm. this will overcome any physical benefit someone else may have who's fitter than me. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, part of the, the real appeal of some of the longer distances that, yes, it helps to be a lot fitter, but the longer the distance is, the less it comes down purely to fitness. Yeah. And that also is a great thing for people as they age, because you can get more experienced as you age, even if you lose a little bit of your sharpness in, say, the for 5K. Sure. Mm -hmm. So um, I do want to go back to a couple of things um, to do with the uh, amenorrhea and, and red S, but given we're on this topic at the moment... Um, I know you've got really obsessed with the Eco Trail Fiji race. Um, you've been doing a lot of podcasts about it. I loved watching the show on Amazon, the world's toughest race with Bear Grylls. Um, there's actually a lot of ultra runners in there, and I think yeah. you've interviewed several of them already. Um, so does that side of things appeal to you as well? You've mentioned running on trails. So what about doing all these multi-sport elements to it as well? Um, well, my husband actually said to me that he would like to do something like that. So if he would want to do it, then I think I would be up for us doing it together. Um, you know, when the kids are a bit older, going to do a weekend of stuff like that. Like, you know, I could see us trying to do, yes, one of those races or I've thought about the running the Grand Canyon thing, something like something like that. Um, but actually, I don't, I don't know if he his body could handle that. He has some back issues, but um we'd like to do something like that so yeah I definitely that's piqued my interest the thing that worries me though is the not the actual activities but the the trench foot thing of getting an infection <laughs> yeah. that scares me about and I, you're gonna laugh at this as a, as a trail ultra guy but the the bugs crawling on me while I'm trying to sleep like I don't like that um, the, the hey, I don't like that either. That's why I generally do single day races where I don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well there you go. But then that, but that's more the element. It's the, it's the nature part of it that kind of freaks me out a bit. Like yeah, the the trench foot is probably my biggest thing of like it, my my body like rotting from the inside out is is more what scares me than kind of the gritty part of it. But yeah, I think I could see that in my future somewhere of giving it giving it a go and seeing seeing what happens and bear in mind you know that's a, the most extreme type of adventure race that's a 10-day race with <laughs> massive sleep deprivation and doing uh middle of the night stuff that's freezing cold and then super hot stuff in the middle of the day in fiji so there's there's easier stuff than that and i'd actually argue that for any athlete and so I, I i like to think of you know runner is beyond just running you ideally want to be able to do more than just run on a road in a straight line uh, and it helps you to be a better runner at running say a marathon mm. if you do these other things too but i think doing a little bit of obstacle racing adventure racing trail running all of that helps make you more well-rounded. It gives yeah. you a better appreciation for how to judge effort, for how to fix things, for dealing with adversity. Um, I've done a couple of Spartan races, and even though it's a very different culture, there's something very fun about it. And I think the thing that a lot of people get put off by is being bad at something or being mm. relatively worse than they are. So mm -hmm. if you're a marathoner, maybe you don't want to do a 5K because you, you're not a fast person. Or if you're um, a runner, you don't want to do an adventure race because you don't do the upper body stuff. So you don't want to be near the back of the field if you're near the front of the field in the running. Yeah. And I, I think a perfect example of someone who is 
a great inspiration for this is Mike Wardian. Uh, I don't know if you know about him, but he's a uh, oh, yeah. he, he does every type of race in the world. Uh, he's a good friend. I've paced him at races like Badwater and. Um, he'll take on a 5K, a 100 mile. I've mentioned him in this podcast before because he's he's just this kind of guy who doesn't mind turning up to a race that yeah. he hasn't necessarily got perfect training for. Um, he will turn up and, and just say, okay, well, this is a uh, Spartan race. I've been in the middle of marathon training. Who cares? I'll just, if it's a start line, I will race hard. And I think that's such a healthy way for everyone to look at it because, first of all, it takes your ego out of it. So you're not just thinking about, oh, well, I'm in this race and I should be in the top whatever percentage and anything other than that is failure. That's the, the whole outcome goal as opposed to the process. But when you do some new stuff, you often really enjoy it. And I think yeah. just watching that TV show of those people in Fiji, that got me super inspired. Um, I, I did one race that was a way less hardcore version of that. It was in um, Malaysian Borneo. And mm -hmm. uh, it was a multi-sport thing in teams of four. And it was not competitive. It was like a corporate challenge thing. And uh, each of the events was like 40 minutes and it was about three events a day. And then you sleep in a bed normally. And it was super, super fun. But it really gets your competitive juices flowing. And it doesn't matter if you're not the best. So that was, that was certainly something I wanted to ask you about is that concept of growth and challenging, challenging yourself in new ways. So you getting on trails is, is doing that. But how important do you think that is for the long-term ability to enjoy any sport, never mind running? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge thing for life is being able to, exactly what you said, there's so many things that people don't go into because they are afraid of failing or afraid of not being good or afraid of people judging. And we all do it from time to time. I mean, uh, it, it, anything that is new and y that you haven't done before or haven't done in a long time is scary and it does bring on that fear that you just want to shell up and hide and say no no I want to stay in my comfort zone I want to stick to what I know but you very very rarely and I'm talking about if you you know did some kind of damage that could take you a really long time to recover from like for example the trench foot thing scares me but um for the most part, you're never going to regret doing something like that because you're going to learn about yourself. You're going to um, you're going to be a better person for it. You're going to be a more well-rounded person. And even within the trails, I keep sometimes I'm in the middle of the week and I'm looking forward to going on the weekend. And then I say, "Oh, but what if I fall and I and I roll my ankle?" And then I, oh, "What if I fall and I like cut my leg open and and it." I just, I can't walk and I'm in the middle of nowhere. And I, you know, and, and all those thoughts go through and that's fear saying, well, why don't you just stay at home and run from your house? But those what ifs are, we can't live our life by worrying about the what ifs because that it just holds you back. It leaves you with regret. It leads to comparison of other people who do do things like that and feeling bad about yourself. So if you find yourself looking at other people and thinking, wow, that's so cool. I could never do that. You wouldn't feel that I could never do that. If you gave it a try, you could maybe say, well, I tried that and I didn't, I wasn't able to do it, but at least I know that I tried. Um, so I think there's so often, it's so often the case that we do shy away from things. And um, I went to see a sports psychologist when I was think maybe 19 uh in my first year at university I was I told you I was um trying to get myself underneath me and um I went to see a sports psychologist because I was struggling mentally and he said um why not put pickle juice in your cake and I thought what are you talking about why would I do that but I the analogy kind of 
what would be the harm in putting pickle juice in a cake? Yeah, it's probably going to taste bad, but you never know. It may turn out to be the next big thing that everyone's doing. So, and I've kind of tried to take that analogy into my life. And I think most people should that, yes, things are scary. Yes, you might fail. Yes, okay, being honest, there might be a few people who kind of maybe chuckle a little bit or roll their eyes at you, but there's going to be 10 times more people who look at you and be like, wow, that's amazing that you tried that, or I wish I could try that, or can we try that together? So you're inspiring more people than you than those tiny slither of people or the family member who might make a, a passive-aggressive remark. So I think it's all about that in, in any sense of our lives, that we need to take that growth mindset and, and see what we can do. And it opens the door to many new things that you may not have considered. So, yeah. for example, when I first got into ultras, I kind of had it in my head that I, I didn't mind doing stuff that lasts a few hours, but I was, I was I like road marathons. I didn't want to go much beyond that. So I wouldn't do 100 miles because I might get slower and worse. And it took me five years to do my first 100 miler after my first 50 miler. And now I love them. And it's kind of the thing that I do mainly. But <laughs> it, it does take a little bit of sometimes stepping out to try that new thing. And then once you're in the new thing, you discover all these other new things and suddenly yeah. your world has become a lot bigger. And so you meet people at hundred milers who do races across America or um, 200 mile races or um, insanely difficult things like the Barkley marathons. And then if you go to those races, you meet people who've done even more insane things. So th there's no cap on it. And that's kind of eye opening. It, it, it's kind of inspiring when you realize that the limits you put on yourself of, oh, this is the most I want to do, or this is the fastest I could ever be, that, that's really just a random number or a random thing you've picked. And that isn't actually a limit. It's, uh, it's really just something you're holding yourself back with. Okay, okay, Ian, I get your message. I'll do a 100 miler someday. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You do, you do a 50 miler, and I think you'll find that you'll yeah. kind of want to do one. You may not do it immediately, yeah. but I wouldn't be surprised. And I think that that's a, a, a good thing for people just to think about. And one of the things you mentioned there about not maybe wanting to get on the trails because you might trip over and cut yourself – the, the thing I hear the most from roadrunners, especially competitive roadrunners, is I can't afford to go on the trails. Mm -hmm. What if I twist my ankle? Then okay. I can't train properly. When in fact, if you go on the trails and you get stronger ankles and you get a more varied, more even fitness from that and the legs are being challenged uphill and downhill and side to side core strength and stuff like that, you'll probably become a better roadrunner. So that fear is actually going to hold you back potentially from being able to do even better mm -hmm. and then obviously you, you can enjoy it as well so it's that extra bonus for sure and it doesn't mean you have to go to a really technical you know climbing over roots and and figuring you know or in or not orienteering what is the term of fi like finding your way I've never known what uh, yeah, the term orienteering is. yeah is that what um, you're saying in trail yeah. running um like finding your own path it could be kind of one of the one of the lighter easier trails that people walk and hike up uh so i think looking back now i'm kind of annoyed at myself for for falling into that trap exactly what you mentioned and it's always ankle that's always that's mm -hmm. always what people are obsessed with doing and myself included was ankle but, but if you have weakness in the ankle yeah. it doesn't make sense to try and strengthen it so it isn't going to hold you yeah. back from the road running yeah <laughs> exactly so um, I think, yeah, that's all really good stuff about just the trail side of things and, and hopefully some things that you will enjoy more. And I encourage people who are listening to this, if you're a roadrunner, 
try out the trails. It doesn't have to be super technical. Um, I mean, look at it this way. If you're doing some weights in the gym, you don't start off doing the heaviest weights. You mm. ease into it. You do lighter weights. You get your muscles used to it. You get your body used to it. And then you can progress that. Same kind of thing with being on trails. I mean, it might just be running on the grass in the park to start with. And that allows you then to get a little bit more ankle strength and, and build up to other things. Mm-hmm. But I did want to go back uh, and to some of the stuff to do with Red S. Um, in particular, just some, some lessons that people can take away from it. So the concept of just knowing that if you feel like you're restricting your calories and particularly if you're feeling tired and you're getting overly obsessed with numbers, those things can certainly lead to it more. Um, how easy is it to get over? Because you had your first uh, baby relatively soon, it sounds, after you yeah. stopped training and, and, and got into more normal dietary habits. So how quickly does that happen? Can there be permanent effects? Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I definitely I want to first say that I my family in general is very fertile. My grandma had 10 children um, and my sister and I both got pregnant first and second times immediately. Um, so I think there is a sen- uh, part of that is that genetically, for some reason, that happens easily. Um, but I... So I was able, I was actually pregnant 10 weeks after I stopped running. Uh, but I had reached a point where I was, as I said, burned out with running to the point of where I could totally do everything. I was all in. I, and I hate to use the numbers, as I said, but it kind of gets the point across. I gained, I think, 15 pounds in six weeks um, because I just went to town. I was determined to do this as quickly as I could. Um, I lied on the couch. I did acupuncture. I, um, made sure I was sleeping. I just did everything that I could do. So I went to the extreme to, and I was able to do that. But I think for most people, the mental side of it is much, much harder. It's kind of the same as when you get injured, you, are just you feel obsessed with running because you can't believe this has been taken away from you versus saying I'm going to take I'm going to choose to take a week off because I want to go on a on a vacation or a holiday and enjoy myself there's it's totally different when it's been taken from you versus you making the choice so for me making the choice was a big part of I think why I was able to mentally handle it but I think most people struggle a lot more with suddenly the the loss of identity. Who am I? What do I do with this time? I'm I, my clothes are getting tighter and I'm panicking. Um, I feel like uh, my it's that whole kind of self worth of are people still going to love me? What are what are they going to talk about with me? Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. And then on the physical side. Uh, it does usually take people a little bit longer than what it took me. But again, a lot of that is because the mental side of letting go is is a lot harder. And so it takes people longer to to let go of those numbers because at the end of the day, as I said earlier, it it the people that reach out to me 
on a daily basis about this it usually only clicks where for women they get their period back or for men they um just feel better again when you've let go of the numbers uh when they've said you know what i don't care what weight i am uh, i'm gonna do this or i don't care how much i have to eat if i have to eat a whole gallon of ice cream every night until this until i feel better i will do it so it's only or if i have to not run for um, six months to get my body to feel normal again, then I'll do it. So the, it's, there's nothing I could say that could kick someone into the, I don't care, I'm going to do it stage. Uh, It has to be finding, reaching that point on their own. But that said, I think working with a dietitian is the number one thing I would say. Um, Nancy Clark, I worked with her. She's nationally known, an amazing dietitian. She was the biggest, wake up call for me of oh actually I do have something wrong with my nutrition um, but then also needing uh, see, needing to speak to a psychologist a psychiatrist a therapist I think that's a huge part of the puzzle here too because if running has been a part of your life or is a part of your life for all these years and it feels like that's what people know you as 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 Tina the runner uh, uh, the runner named Tina or Tina the runner or that's immediately what people ask you about when they see you of course you're going to struggle with that feeling that loss of identity so having someone uh, an expert who can help you deal with the mental side of things that's going to be key as well and is there an overlap there typically with anorexia and bulimia and other eating disorders like that or can they be totally separate things yeah i think most of the time it does they do go hand in hand uh i refused to accept that when i was in my early recovery time um but actually about a year and a half ago i mentioned dr gaudiani earlier on that podcast episode I did with her i was talking to her on the phone about something one day um and she said to me oh um, when did your when did your eating disorder when did you start recovery from your eating disorder and i said I didn't have an eating disorder. And she said, oh, honey, you did. And I was like, "Uh, uh, 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 what? No, 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 I didn't. But then, because I was so, you know, I didn't like that stigma. But then I think now I look back, I did have, I did have an eating disorder. I don't think it was extreme, but it was definitely there. So I would say in some cases, in, in every case, if you are restricting, there's some element of an eating disorder going on there. Um, and that's not to say in the sense of, you know, you get an eating disorder and you get an eating disorder and we all have eating disorders. It's more um, it's more just to say that it is possible to not be thinking about food all day long. And I know to someone listening who is going through this, it feels impossible. And I thought that way too. When people said, oh, I forgot to eat, I used to like want to like punch them in the face to be like that's a lie like no one ever like forgets to eat but now I see that that is possible because not everyone is thinking about food all day long and you can get there so I don't know if that answered your question oh no definitely doesn't I think that that (laughs) stigma is such a part of it that it's again it's a sliding scale it's not saying you're okay or there's something wrong with you and you're faulty it's instead saying i think it's what a quarter of people have some kind of mel- mental illness uh, mm-hmm. supposedly in the, in the general yeah. population but it's a sliding scale it's not like a quarter of people are insane 
It's that a quarter of people have some things that uh, to different degrees that, that affect them. And with this, it doesn't mean that you're a faulty person and you have anorexia. And, and so you definitely don't want to admit to that. It might be that you have elements of that. And, and therefore, if you can acknowledge that, you're much better able to deal with it. But I think that the things you've mentioned is the way that you were thinking at that time. A lot of people can relate to that. Some things you've said, I, I do not for a second think I have any kind of eating issues. Uh, and I'm relatively heavy for a... Uh, a fast kind of runner. I'm 150 pounds and five foot eight, um, but I, so I don't. I don't think there's any issue. But some of the things you mentioned, I catch myself thinking those, like, oh, I had a huge dinner, don't need to have anything till lunchtime. That kind of thing is, is very tempting. So again, sliding scale. It's not on or off. It's mm-hmm. that you can have bits of it, and if you acknowledge that, you can probably deal with it better. And I think it's also what you're feeling in the rest of your life. I mean, if like right now with this this climate that we're in I think we're all under a lot of stress and so we might be more susceptible to those kind of thoughts whereas when you're in a very happy place and you're feeling confident in in yourself as a person those thoughts are less likely to come through so I think people also yeah if you if you're recognizing your what I'm saying in your in yourself ask yourself what else is going on in your life and whether that could be causing you to have a bit of a weakness to to be um, to fall into the trap of those thoughts. And the, the last thing I did want to talk about, I want to be very conscious of, of not uh, taking up too much of your time, but you obviously have your, your business running for real and the podcast that has three and a half million downloads. So relating that to something you were saying there, that obviously running is such a big part of anyone who listens to this is identity, including yours. Um, you switched immediately from starting all of that uh, or for when you stopped running competitively in 2017 you started running for real mm-hmm. you wanted to connect with people you want you wrote a book uh, about this so it, it makes sense that you you kept other elements in there so you didn't lose yourself and i think for anyone else whether that means that they maybe volunteer at some races rather than racing them maybe they help out with their local running club maybe they um help and mentor other runners and things like that so you're still inherently a runner even if you're having a period of having to back off a little bit mm-hmm. and so was that part of the reason you start these things so you had a way to channel that running energy um I don't know I would actually say that I think in a lot of cases if someone was going to step away from the sport for a while it's probably going to be quite painful to do the things you mentioned there of okay. volunteering or being around or mentoring so I think for a lot of people you may want to do something totally different like go volunteer for a local um I don't know non-profit that works with a charity or an uh, environmental I'm very into the environment like a um a sunrise movement or a protect our winters something like something totally unrelated to running if if you feel like you need to but for me I, I don't know why that was that I was able to um do that right in the pinnacle of when I was going through this period within myself I did go through a bit of an imposter syndrome and self-doubt thinking people aren't going to want to hear from me anymore I'm not going to be relevant people are going to think I'm a husband and no one I don't know what I'm talking about and how can I talk about this sport that I'm saying that I can't stand right now but I do think I switched into kind of more of a mentor coaching role that I was able to um feel positive and feel excited for other people in their own running journeys but um I genuinely felt that in my heart. So I think someone has to ask themselves, do you feel if you saw someone who had previously been 
beating you in a race or you you had beaten in a race and they ran faster than your personal best would you feel okay with that and if the answer is no that's fine there's nothing wrong with feeling that way I've felt that way at times I'm sure you felt that way at times but that's when you maybe need to pick something else but if you do feel you could be happy for people around you then yeah by all means stay in the sport by doing things um that get them going but for me yeah I wanted to help the community I felt like I'd been given a lot in running and I wanted to share that wisdom and and help people feel less alone um I feel like that's one of my big missions in life is I hate the idea of people feeling sad uh, on their own being sad and alone um I want to make people feel like they have people to talk to and a world that they are a part of so I think that was kind of driving me with running for real Oh, that's excellent. And thank you for, for kind of clarifying that, because my assumption would have been that still having a connection to running would always be better, but obviously it won't be in, in every case. So mm-hmm. uh, hopefully that, that's very useful for people. And uh, if you have, if people have had um, any issues about this or they're thinking about some of the things you've said, what would be a, the next resource for them to go to, to for them to be able to get some help? Um, I would start with the Jennifer Gaudiani episode just because she explains it and will really help you see if this speaks to you. Um, And also we talk about resources. She has resources. There's resources in the show notes. And I think that will be a big determining factor for a lot of people. Um, As you mentioned, I do have a book if it is a woman who is trying to get her period back. Um, but I think just, uh, there's plenty of other, I've got plenty of other episodes I've done about nutrition. If people want to learn more, um, I actually even have a whole page dedicated to that that I can send you if you want. But, uh, I think the next step would be to go speak to a, a dietitian to find out if there is actually a cal- caloric deficit. And notice I said dietitian, uh, there's a lot of people saying they're nutritionists and that's fine, but um technically I could call myself a nutritionist because I did a nutrition class in school um in university so uh make sure you go to a registered dietitian because they have done the the schooling and the degree to give the right um advice so be sure it's a dietitian not just a nutritionist no thank you uh, and I think all of that's really helpful for people and that's exactly what I do with people that I'm coaching if, if there's any real um difficulties or any comments that keep coming up about eating or feeling like they're overweight or anything like that registered dietitians are are the people I I certainly send them towards Mm so um, thank you for your time and and was there anything else you wanted to mention or anything we we didn't cover here that could be useful for people um not really just that I want to just remind people that there's so much um I mean, I've mentioned quite a lot of it. There's so much that we don't feel we're doing enough for. And I think many of us are always on this quest as runners to feel like we're enough. But I hope my journey has shown you that, yeah, reaching that goal or that next thing you just want to do, I'd be happy when I do this. It's never going to quite be what you think it is. So if you are struggling with not feeling like you're good enough, start looking internally. I mentioned meditation. For me, that's been huge. But start thinking about what it is about you that doesn't feel that you are good enough. So I don't have a specific direction to go, but just start questioning a little bit. So and just thank you to you, Ian. It's been really enjoyable to talk to you. 
Well, thanks a lot for your time. And, and in the show notes, I'll link to that particular episode of your podcast. Uh, I would encourage people to check out Tina's podcast, Running For Real. She's a really good interviewer, very interesting topics. It's not just 100% running. There's a lot of other stuff in there as well. Um, and I'll have links to all of Tina's social media as well uh, in those show notes. And I'll mention them in just a second. So thanks for your time, Tina, and uh, have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much. You can follow Tina on Twitter at, at Tina Muir, on Instagram at, at Tina Muir 88 and her Facebook group is also very active, called Running For Real, just like her podcast. Contact me, Ian Sharman, at sharmanultra.com, and also let me know if there are any particular topics or guests you'd be interested in in the future. We have contact details for Tina and myself in the show notes too. Plus, rating and subscribing to the podcast is really appreciated and will help us get found by more runners searching for this type of content, plus then you won't miss out on anything. You can also check out podiumrun.com for articles for runners of all levels, including the occasional one by myself too. Thank you and see you next month.